You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, Live Different Podcast? It's Matt coming to you with another amazing episode this week with Tiago Forte, a guy who you may not have heard about, but if you want to build a second brain or at least a smarter one, a faster one, a more proficient one, I got the opportunity to speak with him now a few weeks ago, and I've been working on something which is letting my brain get the reward for what the task is at hand. It might not make sense to you at the moment, but it has been something that has been really, really interesting. You guys know in the day and age of multitasking, how it's so easy to just to get a million notifications at the same time. You pick up your phone to go and do one thing and a message gets popped in your face and you immediately react to that. But I've been trying my very hardest. One little tip that Tiago has in this interview that really made a huge difference for me, and that's letting your brain actually receive the reward that it set out to do. So listen in for that tip in this episode. And I want to invite you down to Costa Rica. If you check out our Star Costa Rica trip, there are some awesome deal $695 at the early sign-up price. And if you want to come sooner, I suggest you get down here. Why is still cold? I came up to the United States for a little while and it is freezing up here, but I get back down to Costa Rica this week and I am sure you'd like to go down there with under 30 experiences. Would love to see you. Check out our Trips on Sale page, which is giving you better access to trips that pop up at the last minute. So if you want to get away, check that out. Little new thing we're doing at Under 30 Experiences, our group travel company for people ages 21 to 35. Hope you enjoy this episode. Would love to see you down in Costa Rica. And as always, thank you guys for all the glowing reviews and ratings you guys have left on iTunes. Live Different Podcast is now available on Spotify if you'd like to see it there, in addition to all the other places available on Android and Stitcher and SoundCloud. We have been syndicating this at YouTube as well, trying to get all this important information that we round up every week on the Live Different Podcast out to the world. So please, if you can, drop a rating. Let me know on Instagram at Matt Wilson TV how I'm doing. I'm always looking to improve. I want feedback. So let me know. Looking forward to continuing to build this community for years to come. Thanks, everybody. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Matt Wilson. And today we are here with Tiago Forte, the founder of a productivity consultancy and training firm, Forte Labs. He is also the editor of Praxis a members-only blog on the future of productivity. Recent clients include Gentech, Fiat, Chrysler, Toyota, and the Inter-American Development Bank. He is a traveler uh, coming to us from Mexico City. He's uh, worked at nonprofits and in microfinance in South America, and I'm excited to talk to him. So, Tiago, welcome. Great to be here, Matt. Thank you so much. It's a, it's a pleasure. Of course, of course. Has anybody told you that you look like a young Elon Musk? Just about every week. Seriously? <laughs> and there's a there's a helicopter going over me now, conveniently. So. <laughs> no, that's okay. Well, are you an Elon Musk fan? At least I am. At least I have that. At least it's not a undesirable association. Many people. I've thought in the past that I could, you know, if the if the whole productivity thing doesn't work out, I could always have a. Uh, Elon Musk impersonation business, going to <laughs> parties and weddings and actually probably more tech events and meetups. <laughs> sure, sure. That's really funny. That could be quite profitable, actually. That's my backup plan. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, we were chatting off camera, of course, about Mexico City a little bit and, and your travels. I guess it's as good as good as way as any to, to kick things off. I'm, I'm curious, what are you doing down there? You just moved there. I did just last week. It's basically an experiment. So much of my work, it's about working in ways that are more flexible or more adaptable or more like amenable to remote work or to offsite work or to working in small batches. You know, all these kind of flexible new ways that we work today, not just like the nine to five. And I just realized, wow, I should actually, you know, test my own theories. And uh, really, the experiment is can I live abroad? 
in a city that I love, which is Mexico City, while not just maintaining a career in a business, but growing it, like actually making progress. I think we've, it's like, it's pretty well accepted that you can, you can work and live abroad now, but it's not as well accepted that you can actually grow a business. I think that's, that's more like the, the frontier. And so that's what we're trying to do. My fiance and I are getting married here in April. We'll stay here one to two years at least. So we're, we're pretty much all in right now. Okay. So you're committed, it sounds like. I am. I am. Now, why select Mexico City and put the one to two years on it? I could guess and say maybe your fiance is Mexican. But other than that, yeah, why not be a digital nomad and try it a bunch of different places? Yeah, you know, there was a number of reasons. She is Mexican-American. Okay. So she has a, a lifelong dream. She's, I think, like two or three generations in the U.S. So she wanted to get in touch with her roots, kind of immerse herself in the culture, improve her Spanish. So, you know, that was a huge incentive. And then for me, I can really work from anywhere, but I love Mexico. I also want to improve my Spanish. Mexico City is an incredible city, which is also just a few hour flight from where both our families live, which is Southern California. So really from our family's point of view, we lived in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area before. So I think we'll be coming home just as often, which, you know, we're both Latino. I'm Brazilian. My family is Brazilian. So family is extremely important to both of us. So I don't know, just kind of a confluence of factors when we like combine them all, one city popped out the end, which was Mexico City. <laughs> okay, excellent. Well, yeah, congrats on the move. Actually, for anybody, I've not been to Mexico City, uh, so I'm curious if you have anything for people who are listening as I'm sure a massive percentage of our listeners are avid travelers. I own a, a travel company called Under 30 Experiences. I was telling you a little bit before, we have a trip to the Yucatan from Tulum area, and it also connects to our trip uh, down to Belize, which is a really cool part of the country, of course. But I haven't had the chance to explore Mexico City too much. as top on my list, but I'm curious what you can tell people about it. I think Mexico City is going to be the one of the top handful of sort of digital nomad hotspots. I mean, I to a certain extent, I'm kind of baffled that it's not already. Like, I can't see any downside, you know? Cheap flights to and from the U.S. all day long, really great infrastructure, incredible. I mean, every day I have food that is just blows my mind, and it's so cheap. I can't believe a city this large and cosmopolitan is so cheap. It's about a third the living cost, a quarter to a third the living cost of San Francisco. You know, there's things people mention like the crime and the pollution, but honestly, I don't notice a difference. Like I'm outside right now. Yeah, maybe it's a little bit hazy, but you know, I live most of my life in LA, so it's not exactly like I came from the pristine wilderness. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I see trees behind you. You look like you're out on your your roof deck. Do you live in the center of the city, or how far outside of the center do you live? So this is our third trip. We did a couple. Or the first trip was just kind of vacation. Second one was a kind of a scouting trip. For this one, we decided to stay the first couple of weeks in Coyoacan, which is sort of a suburb in the south. It's still in the central part of the city, but kind of in the south a little bit. And the reason for that is we just wanted something a bit quieter. We were in Roma Norte before, and uh, it was great, the, the hubbub and the activity, but we were right across the street from a park and got woken up every morning at like 7.30 by a Zumba class. <laughs> nice. Nice. So we're like, okay, this time let's find a quiet, a quiet, leafy neighborhood. It's also right down the street from Frida's house, which is now a museum. Oh no! Way. Um, and yeah, Frida is Lauren, is Lauren, my fiance Lauren's kind of inspiration and muse. So we wanted to start off in like a a significant place and and be inspired by her work. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah, that that's excellent. I wanted to ask you actually. It might be a decent way to transition because of course whenever we interview nomads or people who live abroad about how exactly they're able to afford to travel and not be stuck at a desk from the hours of nine to five somewhere in the United States with high costs of living where they might not particularly choose. But you have this concept of the full stack freelancer. And there's a great graphic that we'll try to include in the show notes with your permission, of course, that you have a graphic that shows social media and your blog and public workshops, the online courses, the phone coaching, corporate trainings, consulting, and again, the full stack of what you can offer 
somebody. And you also have a very interesting concept and idea that as a freelancer, you consider yourself a generalist where the kind of age-old advice or 21st century advice is to, all right, no, you have to really get focused on one thing, become good at that, either be a really good designer, be a really good developer, be a really good at SEO, for example, or be really good at email marketing, copywriting. Uh, But you disagree with that. So could you tell everyone a little bit more about what you do specifically and how it fits that model? Yeah, that was an amazing summary. Like, good job. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I just read the graphic. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. Is the this has probably been my most sort of meme worthy or, you know, semi viral uh, thing I've written. And it's just basically that this idea that you have to you have to specialize. There's no other way because you have to compete. You have to differentiate yourself. You have to be known for something. That is a that is a 20th century artifact. I think it's a it's a pre-internet kind of idea. And it's, it's sort of founded on the assumption that you can't do it all yourself. You know, you can't create and sell and teach and invest and do all these different things. But with the internet, I mean, I have in part two to that, that post, there's a full stack freelancer part two. Because people ask me like, you know, what does this cost? How do you have all these capabilities? And I just lay them out. I say, look, my teaching platform costs 70 bucks a month. My online forum that my customers use costs 50 a month. Like, I mean, everyone, we all have these subscription services, right? But the thing that people notice is like all my subscriptions, which sustain my entire business, are only marginally more than what people already pay for. You know, if you're already paying for all the different things you have, Spotify and all, you know, the typical SaaS stuff, if you spend, you know, another 50 or 100%, you can suddenly have enterprise-worthy, enterprise-class platforms for, you know, showing your videos, for selling courses, for... Gumroad for selling PDFs and other digital products. There's Clarity for coaching. There's Discourse, which is a forum that I use. There's Slack. It's like there's a buffet of services, all of which give you capabilities that, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, the top CEO of the top company didn't have access to, you know? So it's like all these capabilities that used to have a huge company to, to service now can be done with SaaS, with software as a service. Sure. Sure, that that makes a lot of sense. So for somebody out there thinking about, okay, I want to, well, let me back up for a second, actually, because as we said, the advice is usually go out there and really specialize. Now, I find as a small business owner, someone who's taken a, quote, startup and built it now to a team of about 30 people, I find that the generalists that started You know, there are some generalists that have started with us and they were lucky enough to get in early and kind of build themselves to the head of marketing or the head of product, for example. But now as we've grown, we're really looking for specialists. We just brought in that SEO person who we know is going to champion that effort because nobody at the company knows enough about it. And we could have hired a contractor, but we wanted to bring this person in-house. They get it. You know, we wanted this person as a full-time employee or logistics, for example, what we do with our trips all around the world. Yeah, we used to, it just used to be me coordinating your trip to Costa Rica and your trip to (laughs) Machu Picchu, right? But now we need experts in those countries. So we're shifting as a company away from generalists more to specialists. But what you're saying is if you're going out and trying to really start a business on your own as what you've done, you're going to want to have all of these skill sets or at least how to speak the language. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And, and that's, I think, super natural, part of the, the very natural evolution of a company. Yeah, when you're of a certain size, you have enough SEO work that one person can and should dedicate themselves completely to it. The full stack freelancer model, and this is why I stuck with the freelancer, because it's, it's beyond freelancers, but I wanted to include in there that this is really speaking to the solopreneur movement. You know, if you can afford it and you're of the scale to hire specialists, definitely do. But for people who are, you know, often freelancers, they're addicted to the to the hourly rate, right? Because by the time they can afford to become uh, freelancers, they often are they are a specialist, right? They're a very well known photographer, very well known consultant, very well known whatever. But then often, I think they find that being self employed as a highly paid by the hour freelancer doesn't really give much more freedom. 
right? You're still stuck to the trading hours for dollars model. Sure. Except now you have no one to depend on. It's all on you. <laughs> so the, what I was trying to show with that kind of portfolio graphic that you're referring to, as a freelancer, you have to have different kinds of income, not just different sources, not just different clients, but different like flavors. Okay. So I'll give you a couple examples. I have a blog Praxis that's a subscription blog, right? So people pay $10 a month or $100 a year. And it's not, you know, an enormous moneymaker. It doesn't cover all my expenses. But with the volatility of a freelancer working for companies and clients, every dollar that I know is coming in every month is worth $10 that are uncertain. Okay. There's been so many months where that little, that's relatively small amount of money from the blog, but that I knew was coming month after month allowed me to take more risks, allowed me to take on bigger clients that I, you know, sales efforts that I didn't know were going to pay off. Basically, like if you look at the like a volatility graph by having this base that, you know, it's not going to go below, which has to come from passive products, online courses, ebooks, PDFs, subscriptions. And that's that's, I think, what's been uniquely enabled even more than SaaS is that you can have a digital artifact online that sells whether or not you're working. And when I started, it was mostly consulting and training. So I had most of the volatility. And then I just, it's, it's really a long-term play. You know, my first course was like 50 bucks. I would sell, you know, one or two a week. So it's just a small trickle. But then over time, it's grown and grown to the point where if I want to take a month or two off of clients, which is really good for the mental health, <laughs> yes. uh, then I can. It's not like, you know, the world will end. So I think that's good from a, a health point of view, you know, that you're not like I, I was in, I actually worked for a big consulting firm before and the pace and intensity of consulting where like, as soon as you're done with one client, you know, you're exhausted. You, the very next day you're on again because you know, the, your time is money. So billable you have to get right hours. Back into it. It's all about billable hours. Yeah. So I don't know. I, th- I think the ability for almost everyone to have at least a little bit of passive income is just changing the entire risk profile. And the lifestyle, I would say, of what it means to be a freelancer. Okay, excellent. Well, it's interesting because I had a conversation with a guy named Andrew Yang, and he founded Venture for America, and he's actually running for president. He's a big fan of universal basic income, and that's the platform and on which he's really running uh, for president. And so in his his whole idea is you get a thousand dollars a month no matter who you are. That takes care of a very baseline income so that you can have that pressure off of you and then you can focus on, yeah, I mean, most people in the United States are just going to go back to work and that's going to help with certain amount of their expenses. But what you're talking about right here is you're creating your own kind of basic income where, all right, you don't have to get up and charge billable hours today, which is very important to you because you could probably live on a thousand. I know. In in fact, I know you could live off a thousand dollars in Mexico city if you wanted to. And then, all right, maybe I want to travel this month. And then maybe I want to actually pick up that big freelancing gig. That's really important. So for people out there that are trying to travel and create a more flexible lifestyle, what would your advice be to them to try to establish their basic income where they don't necessarily have to trade time for money? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And I love that. It's such a great parallel to, to the universal basic income. I'd never thought of it that way, but it, it's true. It's like I'm providing my own basic income. And I would say, man, and this, this is hard because it enters into the whole start an online business kind of cliche, which I think is becoming a cliche, which is unfortunate because people are making real, a lot of people are making money some of them make real money online and people dismissing it as, Oh, just a marketing fad are really missing. I think a a multi-generational opportunity here. So what would I recommend? I mean, the options are limitless and this is also kind of what makes it hard. Some people have found great success in eBooks. I only started eBooks maybe a year or two ago and it's still quite small. My main thing has really been online courses, online courses. And we've sort of seen already a few waves of online courses. Like there was the the aggregators like Skillshare, Udemy, Udacity, these kind of marketplaces. And I started there. I started my first online course on Skillshare. It's like $25. But then what you find is you kind of start entering this world of online teaching. 
is you don't want your courses there for the long term because their incentive is to grow their user base all the time. And the easiest way for them to do that, and they can't resist the temptation, is to discount the, your your courses. <laughs> ah, okay. Right. So I would, you know, set my price. I did Skillshare and, and I did Udemy, and then I'd go in there, and Udemy is running a ninety percent off sale, like all the time. Oh. And I'm like, well, that impacts my income, <laughs> obviously. Right. So I think we're seeing a. I think it's the third wave. It's the third wave of online teaching platforms, which are the white labels. So. There's ones like Teachable, Thinkific, and there's another one that starts with a Z. I can't quite remember, um, but they basically they don't do the marketing for you. They're not marketplaces. They just say we'll give you all the infrastructure, all of the tools you need, and you actually create the content and market it. Okay, yeah, I, I just wrote down those for our our show notes: Teachable and and Thinkific. So if somebody has a skill that they think they could teach other people. And hopefully the listeners do. If not, would you say they should be honing that? And is that a specialty right there? Probably. Kind of, actually. So this is a great point, is you kind of create your own specialties, right? But so what, what does that specialty entail? It means I need to know graphic design. I need to know video production, copywriting, a little bit of technical back-end sort of configuration. I need to know, you know, pedagogy, how to teach, uh, public speaking, social media, and online marketing. It's like, is that really a specialty? It's like, it's a cross-cutting sort of diagonal specialty across many, many different skills. And I know that probably sounds intimidating, but the thing is, you don't need to know any of them well. <laughs> okay. Like, you- I'm not sure in one of those things I just mentioned, I'm better than like, like mediocre or average. <laughs> Okay, so you used a word that I did not know, and I got to ask you, pedagogy. You defined it as how to teach. So if somebody's looking to get better at that, which is not easy, where would you direct them? So this is a, that's a great point. And I think, I mean, teaching, you can go study. You can go study, you know, instructional design. That's actually the more common term. But I don't actually think that's the best way. I think the best way is just by doing you know, it's just by by actually doing it. For me, I, I started, I was always a teacher, starting with my younger siblings. But I also taught English in Latin America. That's a fantastic way of, of getting some experience. I taught Portuguese in Colombia. Then in the Peace Corps, I was in Ukraine in Eastern Europe. In the Peace Corps for two years, all I did was teach, you know, teaching English primarily, but also like project management, community service, youth development, there's kind of like a whole democracy building, civic development thing they have there. So really all my, I've never had a really a formal teaching job. It's all been through, through just trial and error. And the thing I noticed with that is like, teachers should be some of the most likely candidates for this. Like actual, you know, grade school, middle school, high school, college, they should be some of the people most taking advantage of this. But when I talk to them about it, it's like, the way that teachers are taught and educated, the way they think is so the opposite of like online marketing, right? Teachers are very just like, it's like very pure, straightforward. It's all about learning and scholarship. And it's very like uh, altruistic and self-sacrificial. Whereas then the online marketer is about user acquisition and conversion, all these things. So it makes me sad that some of the people that could most take advantage of the online course trend just don't really have the mindset for it. Plus many of those you know skills that I mentioned. Okay, so how about if somebody is out there listening and saying, wow, online conversion rates and email marketing campaigns, they wouldn't even know what, where to start, but they still want to go out and create a course and teach people online. They know they have a talent. They are a specialist, but they want to get up and running. Is there a platform or maybe you have advice on just find someone who does know this stuff and partner with them? What would you recommend to those people? Yeah. Okay. Great question. So the funny thing here is creating something, an online product is it's a heavy lift. It's like a big endeavor, right? So to a certain extent, you don't want to start online. By the time you have the online product, the thing needs to be tested, validated, proven, like for sure it works. So the shortcut that I took for this is my first course, which is called Get Stuff Done Like a Boss, was just a complete, like, shameless, just translation of a best-selling book, which is called Getting Things Done, to a video-based course. Like, I didn't even, I was so, so naive, I didn't even know that that was like, you know, you weren't supposed to do that. Like, I just did a complete copy of that course. 
And that's how we knew it was proven. I could just say, this is the video-based course for GTD. And that already had a brand, it had a following, and an audience. I did get a a letter from their lawyers, which was very kind and said, could you just put a a disclaimer that this is not officially endorsed? And I did. And actually, a couple years later, David Allen, who's the creator of GTD and a super mega star in the world of productivity, maybe the most famous, you know, influential person, invited me on his podcast. Not only did I not get sued and in trouble, that actually ended up being, I think he, he was open-minded enough to realize that I could be an asset to him, that you know we're not in competition. People who take my course are even more likely to buy his book and vice versa. So that, that helped a lot. But another way to do it is to teach in person. You know, When you teach in person, your, your rate of learning is exponentially faster. It's not like publishing something online, waiting a few days, getting one or two comments. When you're teaching even a small group of like three or four people, I mean, you're, it's all the micro expressions. You can see in real time what is kind of landing for them, what is not, what is resonating, what is not. It's like this rapid testing prototyping experience. And that's actually easier to do than you think. You know, like my online course, I didn't even start with that. I started as a book club. You know, start a book club. That, that is like the very little entry way to teaching because what happens at book clubs often is people don't read the book. Sure. <laughs> And this is what happened. It was a book club among my colleagues. And so I started, you know, they started asking me actually, well, you seem to be the only one reading the book. Could you just explain it to us each week? (laughs) Right. That was a very initial, oh, I can actually just read a chapter and explain it to people and they get it. Like that was the first little tiny light bulb. Okay. Yeah, we have an under 30 experiences book club actually for all of our travelers inside of our community. And and I hear that and we actually try to structure the questions so that you don't have to read the book to talk about the questions in the book club. You can still participate even if you haven't read the book. Anyway, that's just an aside. Uh, but okay, so for someone that has these skills, they have taught. A perfect example would be my girlfriend who's a phenomenal yoga teacher. She has 15 years of experience, but she doesn't have an online business. and just her going to MailChimp and signing up for an email, you know, to get her email newsletter going. And then, oh, she needs to revamp her website. And oh, then she's going to have to start writing blog articles and get her Twitter account. You know, all the things that somebody tells you when they, when you go to start an online business, if that's totally overwhelming, where would you send that person? Yeah, and, and this is the deceptive part of listening to the top experts. And it, it's really a shame because, yeah, you go online and you go, oh, I want to learn from the best person. So you do a Google search, you know, how to create an online course. And you get these superstars, you know, Ramit Sethi and Tim Ferriss and all these big names. You can't relate to them. You know, they started so long ago and they're so beyond the level of one person that it's, it's just difficult to connect. So I actually recommend people go to to someone that's just a level or two above them and just talk to them, just interview. And it's not, it's not difficult to get a hold of these people. Ask them how they started. I mean, it, it, you don't have to launch everything at once. I think that's the big thing people think. And I talk to people that have been working for months or years on like working behind the scenes in stealth mode to then have this big launch that never works, right? Because you never know just working privately by yourself if what you're creating is good. You got to work in public, you got to be constantly pushing out and publishing things. And one in 10 things you publish, people are going to go, now that's cool. And then you pivot the whole operation. I mean, this is classic like lean startup mode. You know, you, you have to assume that you have no idea what people want and you have no idea how to, how to give it to them. You have to track people's reactions and feedback. Otherwise, you're going to have a big launch and it's going to be, you know, crickets. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned Lean Startup because it was actually an example of what I was going to use about Trevor Owens, who started Lean, which is a, a software system for Lean Startups, but is not affiliated with Eric Reese, who wrote the book. Uh, but Trevor's a friend of mine, and he he just emailed Eric Reese and was like, hey, love what you've started can we start creating software and a series of events around there? And he said, yeah, just put a little disclaimer. And Trevor has perpetuated the whole Lean Startup mission and methodology, which are great events if anybody uh, is listening. If there's a Lean Startup event in your community, definitely think about attending because it's a you know great place to learn and actually put these things into action. But 
yeah, this is another this is another type of thing where you can. I don't want everybody to go out and be like, all right, let me just rip off people's books. But if there is a community <laughs> behind it, that is an opportunity because people people care about that stuff. I think that's important to to note. I would recommend people actually. I mean, like obviously, you know, be smart about it. But I think people are always trying to, to create an audience from scratch. You know, they're trying to start from nothing. Oh, let me create this Twitter account. Zero followers. Okay. One follower at a time. Let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> it's like brutal. When all around us is these huge communities that have so many needs, you know, so many needs. Go to them, interview the leaders or just anyone and ask, what does this community need? And often that will give you an offshoot or a compliment or the next level or a specialized service. It's, it's almost like there's this whale and there's all these like little sucking creatures that are just kind of feeding on what the whale is is eating. And that's a great way to start. And then eventually you can, you probably want to create your own thing after a while. I mean, so I have three online courses. The first one was just based directly on a book. The second one was based on a few books. So it was on habit formation. I was a little more confident. I borrowed from a few different books and started like creating my own frameworks. And it was only four years in. It took four years for me to create the third one, which is called Building a Second Brain, which is now my, my current, you know, like primary one and flagship. Um, that took four years. It took four years for me to have the confidence and the, the original ideas to put that together. So it really takes time. That's great. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, so I'm in the process of writing my first book, The Millennial Travel Guidebook. And it's the intent is to get people up and traveling. And from any type of travel that they are looking to do, it could be the five-day getaway to Mexico City, which is totally doable to becoming that digital nomad or uh, freelancer. I'm going to look to and actually shift some of my recommendations on specializing to maybe becoming more of a generalist. I'm going to, uh, I'll probably quote you in the book. I've already have that section written. But one of the things that goes through my mind all the time when I'm writing is, all right, well, you have kind of this, for example, I read Tim Ferriss for our work week. Mm-hmm. in 2007 between my junior and senior years of college and that just shaped had totally changed the way I thought I saw it on a Barnes and Noble bookshelf for probably a borders who's not even in business anymore and it shifted the way that I thought but as I'm writing I'm thinking okay probably a lot of this stuff is still in the 4 hour work week and sometimes it's a hit to your confidence when it's already been said by this in you know this who everyone thinks of as incredible experts but you're trying to put it into different terms for a different audience this is for my community of already thousands of people so if someone out there is saying yeah hey i'm a a fitness coach for example and they've studied five gurus in the space and they don't want to feel like they're just kind of ripping off what that person has already said because they're restructuring it into their own format that's digestible for their audience. What would you tell those people on a a level of confidence so that they don't suffer from what I've heard called imposter syndrome? Great question. And here's my take on this. So I think that every good idea Every single good idea has to be re-explained, has to be translated, not only to every new generation, but to every different group of people. Okay. So multiply every good idea. Let's say there's a million. Okay. But then every generation, every 20 to 30 years has to be completely reinterpreted times all the little interest groups, which are getting more splintered and fragmented all the time. So like, you know, take Stoicism, okay? Stoicism, oh, Aristotle. No, it wasn't Aristotle. Uh, Seneca had that. He, he covered that. No, 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 no. Every single generation has to be reintroduced to Stoicism. You know, and then it has to be, you know, there's Stoicism for startup people. There's Stoicism for moms. There's Stoicism for whatever, right? So in the past, when you only had mass media, only the biggest of those groups, you know, maybe like young people, professionals, and like, Farmers or, you know, these big interest groups were big enough to monetize. Now, you know, there's the thousand true fans whole thing, which I think is getting more true all the time. For my blog, I only have 425 members. 425 people is my core. 
That's really my core audience. And they like the very particular way that I explain things, which is very niche and very kind of like not, you know, it's not mainstream. So when you think of it that way, there's, there's everywhere you look, like every group that you see around you that has at least a thousand people, which is, you know, I mean, that's easy when you talk on a global scale with the internet is waiting to have a product made for them right? Like that's a niche that you can target, that you can speak to. So what I would have people do is look at themselves. Who are the groups that because of their life experience, they are most prepared to translate that message? You know, like, are you from a certain country? You know, like I'm actually looking at now at launching products for Brazil because they're, you know, there's their productivity guru space, which is huge, but how many of them are speaking specifically to Brazilians who know the Brazilian culture and history and everything? And you think, well, okay, that's a niche, but it's a niche of 200 million people. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Someone you should connect, connect with actually in Mexico City, someone who's done just what you're talking about, but into the Spanish-speaking market. Andrea Rodriguez Rojas is her name. And look her up or I'll introduce you, but she's done, she went and worked for Mind Valley company that you've probably heard of. And yeah, she took a lot of, you know, she's been doing it for quite some time now. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to sometimes actually to brush up on my Spanish, I'll go listen to her podcast and then realize how you can explain all of these business terms, which, you know, probably from speaking Portuguese that the business terms Almost always, they just take the English word and plug it in. Yeah. Or I don't know if that's how it's done in Portuguese, but at least in Spanish. So anyway, that's a quick aside. But Tiago, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about productivity and see if we can uh, fire off some actionable stuff for people on the podcast. We've had David Allen on the podcast recently, who was amazing to talk to. But it was funny during our conversation, because he's kind of the guru of productivity. And he has written so much that I didn't want to just be that kind of kid who asks, you know, he's, he's, I think he's in his seventies probably now that just asks this guy, all the stuff that you could just pick up in his book. And so it was kind of a, I asked him more deep questions about having a mind like water, which I'm sure you've heard. And when you talk to the guy, he's very, he really is very Zen. He's very, just like a, has a very level-headed energy about him. Um, but anyway, I wanted to ask you a little bit more how, A, you got into the, okay, so we know how you got into the productivity space, but then you picked up on Evernote. And I think that was maybe one of your personal turning points or tipping points for your business. But you've taken this tool, which people may or may not be familiar with. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a power user, but I do use it for everything. When I went to prep for the interview and read your stuff, I was blown away and actually said, I wish I had more time to prepare so I could ask more intelligent questions about the real deep layers of Evernote. But uh, could you, yeah, could you talk to people a little bit more about your journey and then specifically uh, about the tool uh, at hand? Absolutely. Yeah. So th this is really my main focus these days is really a new field that I'm trying to popularize, which is called PKM, which stands for personal knowledge management. And it's basically, it's the, the art and science of everything, you know, okay. Think of like everything, you know, from like pieces of wisdom to things you've learned from books to quotes that you like, even like projects you've worked on assets, you've created this whole universe of really like digital files and digital pieces of text and image and video. How do you manage it? Right? Most people at best, they have it, you know, in some folders buried in their hard drive somewhere, or maybe they have some things on Evernote or another note taking program. But what I'm trying to do with my course, which you can see at buildingasecondbrain.com, and which will soon be a book, I'm closing in on finishing this book, Excellent. is a more systematic method essentially to do for personal knowledge, what GTD did for productivity. Like you don't have to, you know, what I notice with a lot of people who are knowledge intensive, researchers, scientists, students, professors, is they have their own home designed, how do, how do you say that? Like home brewed system, you know, that, that they developed through years and years of trial and error. And they think they're the only one that has it. They're sure it would never work for anyone else. And, and yet studying these people and interviewing them, it's many of the very same principles. 
And so what I'm trying to do is systematize that and make it into a plug and play thing where you can say, oh, you want to learn everything there is to know about online marketing. Okay, just use this personal knowledge management system to systematically capture, organize, and then use that knowledge to produce new things. It's like it's plug and play. It's standardized. It's uh, something that's teachable and learnable and not something you have to go spend 20 years learning how to learn. So Evernote is the is where I started uh, and sort of been my like host organism, if you will. But nothing that I teach is specific to Evernote. I don't rely on any of the functionality or the particularities of Evernote. In fact, in my course, I think maybe about like 50 or 60 percent of the people are using Evernote for their I call it their second brain since the course is building a second brain. And the rest are using dozens of different, you know, Microsoft OneNote, Google Keep, Apple Notes, Simple Notes, uh, Zoho Notebooks. There's now at least a couple dozen of these programs. And really, all of them are completely usable for this, this thing that I'm, I'm teaching. Okay. Uh, well, if you don't mind, I want to ask you first a little bit about Evernote and then into what your system looks like. So I take Evernote. Well, first of all, if I can explain Evernote to someone, which is probably better than I do it because it'll be the real layman's version, right? It's like take your notes on your Apple, on your iPhone, and just think of a much better version of that where everything's saved. You can recall everything very quickly. You can take photos with it. I'm sure Apple has improved their notes, but Evernote, I cannot stress enough that the system is it's really an amazing piece of software. And uh, it's kind of a thing like Microsoft Excel, where if you say, yeah, I'm a, I use Excel every day, you can use 5% of the functionality or probably 2% of the functionality. And there's someone else who there's just layers of depth to the piece of software that you don't even know about, which I, I assume that you know a heck of a lot more, Tiago. But I would recommend people, if they want a second brain, to actually remember, okay, today I went to the post office and I mailed something. I'm not going to keep that tracking number or that receipt. So I took a photo of it. It's in my Evernote. It's not in my camera roll, which is how I used to operate for years. I, I, it, I just scrolled through pictures and I could never find what I was looking for. Now I tag it up quick with receipt or I probably didn't because that can be time intensive or, or whatever. But I mean, everything that I ever need is pretty much at my fingertips because of Evernote. But I wanted to ask you if you could explain a little bit more of some of the nuances on how this can really be a tool for more than just taking a picture of something that you're going to want to remember for later because as much much more powerful software than that. Yeah, I'm happy to. So the sort of model I've developed is that there's three levels. There's three stages that people move through in their use of Evernote or any other note-taking program, or really actually kind of technology in general. Okay. The first stage, the three stages are remember, connect, create. Okay. First you use technology, you use devices to help you remember things. Then you use them to help you connect things, as in connect the dots, connect insights, connect learnings, connect things like that. And then finally, you use technology to create, to create new things. And the interesting thing is, so most people are definitely who use these programs are at the first stage, remember. And actually, if you look at uh, most of the content out there produced by Evernote or even Evernote experts, they actually are focused on this, which makes sense, right? They're trying to get new users. They're trying to evangelize. Like, it's all about, you know, use Evernote or whatever notes app to remember things. So save, like you said, your receipts, save your notes on a, um, on a meeting, save your notes on something you're working on. It's just like little snippets of text, the same way that you would use like a little legal pad on your desk, right? For little bits of text back and forth from your mind. And that's actually, if you stop there, I think it's still worth it. It changed you know, my still, life. <laughs> totally. <laughs> just totally. on that level. Perfect. Perfect. And that's the cool thing is, you know, it's, it's like when you have like a framework where it's like, oh, yeah, once you get to level seven, then you'll start seeing benefits. You're like, okay, well, I, I'm not going to invest all these yeah. years up front, you know. <laughs> and so it's good that it pays off right away, right, when you just start offloading your memory. I think the reason for that is memory is the thing we're worst at. The human brain was not, we can't remember more than seven or eight one digit numbers. We should not be using our precious human brain to remember things. <laughs> but then I think people can go, go beyond to connect. So basically, once you start saving all these things, 
you know, and you go beyond quick little notes, you start saving your notes on a book, right? Like when you highlight in Kindle, there's a very, I, I teach this in my course, there's a very, I actually have a free blog post as well. It's very easy to just export those Kindle highlights to your computer. Oh, wow. So now you have, you know, the, the key points of a book saved in your notes. Then you're listening to a podcast like this one, and there's something we say or a link or a reference that you save. Okay, there's something else. Then you go to a conference and you save some interesting talks or you save someone's contact information. It's like the variety of kinds of information we're exposed to is breathtaking. And as you start adding all these things and they're in one centralized place, that's important, right? They have to be in one place. You start noticing connections. You know, you might notice, oh, the last three people I talked to that were interested in my work were all, I don't know, research scientists. Maybe I should market my product to research scientists. Or you notice, oh, the last five books I've read, all the most, the parts that resonated with me were about meditation. Let me try meditation. That's what learning is. That's what creativity is. It's just making these connections, these lines. And that's another, an enormous benefit, right? You start actually having insights, you know, like the, the, you, when you have your meeting notes and you can say in a meeting, look, guys, we've mentioned this thing the past three meetings. And people go, wow, we have? You start actually bringing novel value and novel ideas and novel insights and connections. So that's like a whole nother level of value. And, and Tiago, just to interrupt for a second. So I was reading and, and I will suggest it to anybody. There is a kind of start here section, I believe, on the I believe it's on the Praxis blog, and there's a really good article that you have out there, and it explains exactly what we're talking about. Um, oh, yeah, how to use Evernote for your creative workflow. And we'll link this up in the show notes, of course. But there, it's because you're just seeing, oh, okay, I'm in a meeting, and here are my meeting notes from last week, and now I'm seeing that connection. Is that literally how you see those connections? So the connections are both implicit and explicit. Many times it is just very intuitive. Like you're, you know, once you have all these notes in one place, you just, the, the eye catches things. You see a word a few times. You notice that this is similar to that or this is different from that. Those are implicit connections and honestly kind of mysterious. Like there's a few things that I teach of how to facilitate those, but that's just the human brain doing what the human brain does, right? Seeing patterns, basically. But you can also then, this is where what's powerful is make those implicit connections explicit. And this is where note-taking, any note-taking program is so powerful. You can add tags, right? So five things that actually don't seem to be alike and don't even have the same words, right? They wouldn't show up in a search at the same time. You can tag them and suddenly you have this like virtual web using that tag. Also links, right? Right? You can't, it's, it's, either difficult or impossible to create, say, a link in a Word document to an arbitrary file on some other part of your computer. I don't know. Maybe there's a way to do that. I'm not familiar with it, but I think that link will probably break. Or, you know, if you send that that file to someone else, obviously the link won't work. Whereas links in one centralized notes program will work, right? Like the program controls all those links. So you can start kind of stitching together all these different notes. And my notes are filled with links. Like it's almost like it's a trail, I go. I start on one note, and then it links me to another one, and that links me somewhere else. And I kind of following these these trails of my my past thinking. Uh, and there's even other ones. There's you know the the context feature in Evernote, which recommends you similar notes. You can do. There's a few a few different features that depend a little bit on your note taking program. Okay, so Tiago, just to be clear, so in your say, if you follow the the getting things done methodology, and you have your weekly recap and you're going through maybe what you teach people is that okay when you do your weekly recap go through your Evernote and look at this week's notes from podcasts and books that you've read and see what pops out at you is that something that you would suggest maybe in one of your courses it is so there's a few different ways you can do it that is one is to set up some sort of schedule you know, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, whatever it is to review, you know, what did I learn? What did I learn this quarter? What are my insights? What are my conclusions? And that can be powerful. But there's a bunch of other different ways. And in fact, the, the main way that I recommend, and this kind of gets to the third stage, create, right? So when you really maximize the power of information management tools, whether it's Evernote or Google Docs or whatever it is, you're really using them to create new things. I think that's just the, the ultimate, uh, you know, like Steve Jobs always said, these tools are to help people express themselves, like to help them amplify their creativity. 
And so I think the ultimate use for these, these tools, these apps, is to make them kind of like a project management tool, right? To really think of your notes, not just as like, oh, things I learned, but as things that are in a process of development to becoming a final product that you actually share with the world. So a great example of that is blogging, right? I just did my, I published my annual review on Twitter and I think I had like almost a hundred blog posts from the past year, from 2018. 68 of them were long form texts written by me and 52 of them were, were for paying customers. And some people were just like, like, how can you blog so much, hundreds of thousands of words a year while running a business? And it's because so many of my notes are blog posts in progress. At any given time, I have maybe 20 to 30 notes that are at some stage of evolution of being blog posts. And so what I do is over time, it's kind of like I'm cultivating them. You know, I'll have an idea, go in and add it. I'll read a book and add some notes. I'll listen to a quote, hear a song and, and add it. And over time, it's like they, they grow and they develop into like an adult organism. And by the time they've completed that process of evolution, I just have to come in, just do one, one review, a once over, get it into publishable form, and then I publish it. That is a very different way of doing things than sitting down at a blank screen and being like, okay, what's something really smart that I have to say? Sure. <laughs> I, I never do that. I can't imagine working that way. You know, and the only way that I can write something like a blog post, a, an article is already starting with 50 or 20 at least of the most interesting ideas that I've come across over the past, let's say, few months. And then it's just like easy. It's like, oh my gosh, look at all this stuff. Just connect, add this to that. This is an example of this. It's just like, it's like putting together a Lego thing. And then you just snap it all together and there, and there you go. And then of course people go, you're brilliant. When in fact, you just borrowed the brilliant ideas of many, many of the best thinkers of the world. That's interesting. And I try to keep a list of articles that I want to write to when I'll hear something like, yeah, I should write an article on that. But that's when I've already made that decision or I've already had that thought. But normally what I jot down on Evernote is, okay, I'm listening to a podcast and I'll put down this little clip that I think is important that, yeah, it's just everyone takes notes. And, but usually that is a piece of inspiration. So for, I know a lot of writers used writing prompts. So there's a piece that you thought was interesting that inspired you. So yeah, what do you need to write most of the time is some inspiration to actually hammer out 500 to 1,000 words on a blog post. So if you have these things queued up, that sounds really, really useful. And uh, I wanted to ask you, Tiago, there, then I'd love to hear your writing process. You just explained it a little bit to us here, and I kind of get it how you make these connections, and then it's all right, already kind of uh, half written, or you got some paragraphs, and you kind of connect them together. But one of the uh, more controversial things that you have said in your career is about deep work and how you disagree with more with deep work. And for me, I try to have an hour or two in the morning where I go to a coffee shop before the office and get my stuff done, and that's writing, and there's nothing else there to distract me. So I consider that my deep work time, but I'm curious, what's your process? Yeah, good. I know I've, I've become known for that. Um, <laughs> and the funny thing is, like in the grand scheme of things, we're, we're quite strongly in agreement like, that deep work is important. I think where we differ is when I read that book, it's sort of like Cal Newport is saying, the way humans work is fixed. The nature of work is fixed. Therefore, there's only one right way to work. And I don't believe that humans are fixed. I think, in fact, humans are the most adaptable thing in the universe. You know, we, we can change everything about how we think, about how we feel, about how we work, about how we produce. We're infinitely malleable. And so is the nature of work. I mean, look at, look at how dramatically work has changed, continues to change over the years. So my approach and my, my first book on productivity is called Design Your Work, is because I think that we can actually, instead of just accepting human nature and the nature of work as givens, as fixed, we can design the very way we structure our work to fit how we want to work and how we want to live. So I'll give you one example. One of my kind of strongest recommendations is for people to work, when they're working on something, don't think about the project as a whole. Like, oh, there's this massive project that's going to take weeks or months. 
Because from that perspective, every time you sit down, like how much progress can you really make in 30 minutes, 45 minutes, even an hour or two on this massive mega project? It's discouraging. It doesn't really prime our motivation. So what I have them think about is kind of, you know, whatever. The big project is the project. But think in terms of intermediate packets. Okay? Everything you produce, no matter how big the project, is made up of little tiny pieces, right? Like reports and analyses and documents and files and diagrams and, you know, little meeting agendas, like all these little pieces. And those pieces actually have tangible forms, right? Like, let's say a piece of your project is to make a decision, right? David Allen talks about this. A decision is not you just sit out there and just gaze off into space and make the decision. Usually there's things you have to talk about, things you have to do, things you have to produce, things you have to consider, right? So that's emails, notes, documents, agendas, telephone calls. So what I advise people to do is every time you sit down, the best thing you can do is to start and finish one of these intermediate packets in one sitting. Okay? And that's regardless of how much time you have. So if you have 15 minutes, what people tend to do usually is default to email, right? As soon as they sit down, they go into email. And suddenly, you've used a bunch of time checking your email, and your priorities are splintered in a million pieces, what you wanted to do, and you're just responding and reacting to people's priorities. So what I ask people to do is, you know, maybe one out of four sessions, sit down and just really do email, do it very well. But then the other three sessions, don't look at your email at all sit down and just decide for yourself or write down on a piece of paper, this is the one thing I'm going to produce in this sitting. Start it, finish it. When you finish it, share it in some way, email it to someone, put it online, send it to someone for feedback. And that is what a productive session looks like. What productivity is, is producing a 15-minute packet in 15-minute time period or one-hour packet in a one-hour time period. It's actually matching what you can do with the time you have available rather than whatever most people do. I don't, I'm not even sure. <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll tell you what I do. For example, this, this book that I'm writing, okay, I'm on chapter five right now. And yeah, chapter five is broken into kind of five bulleted sections. And if I'm writing and I'm on, you know, yesterday I was on the beginning of the fifth section of the fifth chapter, right? So had I left at a good stopping point, it would have been a lot easier for me just to pick up and knock that out. But I finished it in a weird paragraph and I didn't really like it. And then it took me a while to kind of get up and out. And what I should have done is probably finish the damn thing, sat, sat there for, you know, 20 extra minutes and shipped as Seth Godin would say and sent it to my assistant who looks over the very first edits to make sure that it's I don't sound crazy and that would have been a really good stopping point. Is this kind of what you're what you're talking about? That's the perfect example. Perfect. So even reading, if you're reading a book that you're pretty sure you're not you're gonna stop. You're like over it. At least I really encourage you push to the end of the chapter. Because later, let's say you decide, oh, I actually am interested, or you come back to it, or you pick it up because you're bored, you're infinitely more likely to continue it at a chapter marker, right? So now get that analogy to all work, this big deliverable, this big project you're working on. There is a natural ebb and flow, right? The chapter starts, and then it builds. There's a crescendo. Maybe there's some ups and downs, and then there's a finish. There's these natural sort of like stopping points, try to synchronize those natural stopping points in the project with your schedule, right? So end the morning work session with something concrete, then end the afternoon one at one of those stopping points End your day at a stopping point End your week at a stopping point. What that does, it kind of goes back to habit formation, which is, is the loop, you know, trigger behavior reward. If every working session follows that format, you know, the trigger is you deciding this is what I'm going to work on. And then there's a behavior of completing it. And then you end with the reward of actually finishing that thing, right? Even if it's a draft, sometimes you can't finish, finish, but it's like, okay, V1, right? You are actually strengthening your very attraction to working. You're actually making work something inherently pleasurable on a neurochemical level rather than always finish like ending a work session in the middle of something. And then you walk away with that kind of just like, oh, like, did I really was that a good use of my time? Did I add value? Am I making like that just chaos of kind of self-doubting thoughts? Wow, I love trigger 
I just wrote it down. You said trigger, behavior, and reward. I'll tell you something that I'm guilty of, which I'm going to apply this all the time to my work sessions or whatever it is. So I listen to a lot of audiobooks and I get bored of audiobooks about halfway through because you've been trudging through and I still listen to them on 1.5 and, and usually 2x speed, but I'll be going on a walk, for example, and a chapter will finish and I'll have three minutes left to get to back to my door and I'll say, well, I got three minutes and at 2x, I'll, I'll crank six more minutes off of this book. Let me use this time. Sometimes I'll say, that's a good stopping point and end there. But then my problem with audiobooks is I get back in and it's literally, you know, it probably backs it up 10 seconds so you can remember what the heck they were talking about. But I'll get into the middle of a chapter and I'll be like, ah, this isn't really that interesting right now, especially because a lot of the stuff that I read is nonfiction and fairly nerdy. And then the motivation to continue with this book is not there really anymore. And I'll end up spending another 12 bucks on something different that piques my interest. And why did it pique my interest? Because I'm starting over and it's, it's kind of fresh. So thank you for that. I, I appreciate that, Tiago. Yeah, that's a great, another great example. You want to end things on conclusions. This actually speaks to something bigger, which is like with digital work, knowledge work, we're starved. Actually, this is a David Allen quote. We're starved for wins. And I interpret that to mean we're starved for a sense of completion, right? Nothing ever really finishes. You publish a website. It's only v, you know, version 27. And then as soon as it's published, you're going to have to start a new one. As soon as you launch a product, he's working on the next version. It's, it's, it's like everything is in evolution. And you never get that, you know, that old school, like, project is finished. Let's go out and get drinks. Feels like, I don't know. Sure. And so what we're almost doing is creating that rhythm, that sense of constant completions, not just to make it more rewarding, but to strengthen our self-efficacy, right? Your self-efficacy is your own trust and faith in your ability to take something on and see it to completion. If you, if you have no completion in your life, that self-trust is going to be constantly eroded. And when the big opportunity comes, you're going to be like, oh, I, I'm, I know I'm not going to follow through on this. I'm, I'm just not. It's, it's too hard. That's great. Yeah, I'm going to listen. I'm going to think about the trigger behavior reward quite a bit. I always think of a friend who uh, is an entrepreneur and he says, I love cooking because my work at work is never done. The company's never settled. But cooking... I start it, I finish it, I see it to completion, I enjoy it at the end, and that's a win. So that really kind of explains that. I don't know, that friend probably told me that 10 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, thank, thank you for that, Tiago. I have one last question before we wrap up. And one of the things that I see about your work is A, that you're not afraid to believe kind of in the quote that all greatness is borrowed, but then put your own spin on things. But what you're also pretty good at, it seems, is that you can take a great quote or something that somebody said and then flip it and say, actually, the converse is true. And it almost always is true. You always hear conflicting ideas out there. And it's a fantastic way to gain notoriety, like we talked about the Cal Newport deep work. And just by yeah. disagreeing with something that you actually really agree with, but you're able to disagree and make the counterpoint that's extremely valuable and a great marketing technique. So could you talk to everyone maybe about, A, how you have the confidence to be able to do that? And again, the imposter syndrome that I hear so much from people is like, oh God, I mean, it's Cal Newport or I'll get slayed on the internet if I say something too controversial that everybody's going to agree with. But could you you talk about the value in looking at counterpoints and not being afraid to speak up about them? Yes, such a great observation. And thank you. Gosh, I think that's sort of a it's like a deep rooted contrarianism, which I think comes from probably my dad, my dad's a big contrarian. And it's, it's just a way of thinking that is constantly, yeah, I guess I'm constantly looking for the flip side, as true as something is as powerful something as something is. What is the opposite? What is the wrinkle? What is the exception? What is the one step beyond that? What is the assumption that it's resting on? And I think that's useful because strong, powerful statements, they create this little like, it's like a hard point. 
when Cal Newport says deep work, it creates this in people's minds, this very, uh, it's like a, it's like a brick. It's like a hard point. And then you can build on it. You can pivot off of it. You can look behind it. And that's what marketing is basically. I mean, you, you have to reach into the, the already existing structures in people's minds and either contrast against them, say how you're like that. Hey, say how you're better. Otherwise you're just, it's like you're speaking a different language. And, and I often struggle with this with PKM, you know, I'm trying to introduce PKM and and I, I honestly struggle. Like, you know, it's not an idea that most people have considered that I'm going to collect learning and knowledge and then build it up into structures and connect it and then create new things. And so I, I reach for analogies from cooking, from building buildings, from other kinds of art. And it is a challenge, but it's, I think that's just a, a useful way of thinking. Uh, absolutely. And is it, is it difficult to stay positive as a, maybe a natural skeptic, one of my New Year's resolutions is actually to be more agreeable in social situations because, I, okay, in business, I know it's my job to disagree with people and to poke holes in people's ideas. But when you're hanging out with your friends to always tell them why they're wrong, isn't really, you know, that's, that's not that cool. Uh, and then you train your brain to really be always thinking about, oh, no, that's bullshit. Oh, no, this is why we shouldn't do this. Uh, it, it becomes quite a, it was dragging me down for a little bit, I, I feel. Uh, do, you, do you still feel like a positive person? <laughs> I do. I feel like an extremely positive person. I've never thought about that, how those two things coexist. I think it's because I really don't take, take it all very seriously. This, I think, is the secret to Twitter, you know, and social media in general these days. Is like, I'm not sure I've ever gotten in a Twitter fight. Because it's just like, you know, and I've said things and people will come on and be like, you're just the worst, you're a piece of shit. And I just go, I just usually just like their tweet. Like there's, you know, <laughs> what, what am I, am I going to prove them wrong? No. Am I going to convince them of anything? No. I'm just going to, the only thing I'll accomplish by responding is feeding it. And so I just go, okay, there's some random person who probably has a lot of baggage about something that has nothing to do with me, who, you know, wants to blow off some steam by swearing at me on the internet. Fine. You know. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a good way to handle it. Yeah, just assume, every, like, especially, man, social media is a special case. Especially everything there is not real and not serious. And I think if, if it gets too real, it can be very depressing. Cool. No, that's a really positive note to end on. Uh, so, Diago, I, I appreciate that. Could you please tell everyone where they can connect with you and get involved in your community? Yes. So I'm, I'm involved in a lot of kind of different things. It can be hard to get the full picture. But the home base is Forte Labs, F-O-R-T-E-L-A-B-S dot C-O, not dot com, dot C-O. Um, and along the top of that page and down the page, you'll see uh, links to my online courses, to my books, basically everything I do, my coaching. There's a few different products I have there. It's kind of like the, the gateway to everything I do. And I'm also most active on Twitter, at sign Forte Labs. So same, same words. Cool. Tiago, this was a pleasure. I got a lot out of this myself personally, and I know all of our listeners will as well. So I'm looking forward to this coming out. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Matt. Really appreciate it.